Welcome to the Clear Choices Podcast. I'm your host, Rob Eigner, and it is my unique privilege to bring you intriguing conversations with people who have made the bold choices necessary to elevate their lives and create a positive impact on the world. By hearing their stories, I hope you walk away more motivated and more inspired to do the same in your life. Because we all have choices to make. My goal is to help inspire you to make more conscious and powerful choices, clear choices. Now let's get started. Hello and welcome to the second episode of Clear Choices. I am so honored to once again have as my guest one of my parents. Today it's my father, Leslie Eigner, who's a Holocaust survivor. He's the survivor of two concentration camps in Eastern Europe. Along with my mother, they escaped Hungary during the Russian Revolution, came to America, and eventually settled in Portland, Oregon, where they have become successful business owners and real estate investors and have led really a a blessed life. But they did all that after coming through the jaws and the fires of the Holocaust and all that goes along with that from both a physical and an emotional sense. So, Dad, Leslie Eigner, welcome to Clear Choices. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. So if you wouldn't mind, Dad, give us a, a brief overview. I know it's so difficult to tell your poignant history in brief terms, but give us a, an overview of everything that you experienced from before the war to coming to America. I was born in 1929 in Nove At that time, it was Czechoslovakia. Being close to the Hungarian border, the borders changed. Sometimes we were belonging to Czechoslovakia, sometimes to Hungary. In 1939, I was 10 years old when I experienced all kinds of abuse being a Jew, going to school and being chased and beaten. And so I grew up with it. So it wasn't strange for me that when it came 1943, 44, it was just grow grow more. Uh, in 1943, my father was inducted to the forced labor camp. My sister was taken to a factory. And I was home with my mother and my eight-year-old sister in a ghetto. Things started to change rapidly. We were in, had to wear the yellow star when we go out and we couldn't go out in dusk and so on. And so it was changing to the worse. So in 1943, when already my father was taken and my sister wasn't home and we were living in a ghetto outskirts of Budapest the militiamen came actually they came with a truck and we took us to a, an abandoned big factory and from there in a short time we were put on our cattle cars and shipped into Auschwitz where I saw my mother and my eight-year-old sister the last time they shaved our head we got the gray and blue stripes uniform and we marched into the camp a dismal dehumanizing place the nazis were very brutal i just learned very fast when we were marching i got into the middle of the group because when you were on the edge and you stepped out the guards from the watchtower were allowed to shot they practically they were target practicing on us and so a lot of people was shot down just by uh, the guards practicing. And so I was in a, 
Auschwitz, I was in four concentration camp, I have to say. I was in Auschwitz for four months, and then I was shipped to Landsberg. It was a working camp. We worked on different projects of the Nazis. And then I was uh, contacted Typhus, and I was shipped to a smaller camp, Kaufering. I went to Typhus without any medication. I came out of it. But, uh, you know, we were put into the barrack side to side. When we turned, we had to turn at the same time. But when I woke up a week later, there was ample place around me. The rest of them, when I checked, uh, went outside to the barrack. I saw the side of the barrack. They stacked up like cordwood. And I counted my blessing that I wasn't one of them. Uh, Dad, let me let me ask you a question. Go so ahead. I, I, I want it. There's a couple of very key parts of your history that I want to make sure the listeners have a sense of. So one of them is talk to us a little bit more about the last time you saw your mother and your sister and Dr. Mengele. Well, we were shipped from the ghetto with cattle cars to Auschwitz. We were ordered out of the cattle cars, and that's when my they started separating able-bodied men, mothers with children. And that's when I saw my, my mother and my little sister. My little sister looked toward me and gave me a faint wave. My mother turned her head away. That's how it was the last sawing them. I was ordered into the camp, very dismal, dehumanizing place. What, what about Dr. Mengele? Dr. Mengele was the chief medical officer of Auschwitz. He didn't do too much saving people, but he was selecting people who to leave, who not. His motion to the left or right meant life and death. And I was front of him a couple of times. And any time when the transfers were selected to uh, taken, they were taken to a Nazi factory to mend the, the factory because the German man was at war. And so I stayed in Auschwitz because I got a job in the kitchen, which I was very happy. One time that somebody came in and in German, I was speaking some German, asked for workers. And being a 15-year-old kid, I wanted to just get out of the barrack occasionally. I put up my hand and I was ordered to work, work in the kitchen. For the next four months, I was working in the kitchen in Auschwitz. And I witnessed a lot of things. Transports arriving from all over Europe, as many as eight to 12,000 a day. They were always selection. Small part of it, able-bodied men were selected for work. They came into the camp. Sometimes there was no selection. The whole transport, as it arrived, the 10, 12,000 people went to the gas chambers. Four crematorium was around us, as I later learned, and they were puking of black smoke. And the wind was right direction, burned body smell was always around us. In Auschwitz, you know, they, when we arrived, we, they shaved our heads and, uh, you know, everybody was given a, a uniform and this is how it was. And the food was very meager, barely surviving on it. But I was in the kitchen, so I was able to snitch some of the raw potato or whatever. I got edible and this is how I survived in Auschwitz. And I know, I know something very significant happened when you were working in the kitchen. Uh, what did a guard do to you? Well, yeah, I just was getting to it. 
I was working in a kitchen and I was talking as we were not peeling, but cutting the potatoes into square and getting ready for the soup for the next meal for the uh, encampment. And at one occasion, I, uh, the guards yelled, shut up, and I didn't hear him. And he picked up a pitchfork and he threw it toward me and which went through the, my right foot, piercing pain. And I was sent to a so-called hospital barrack. It's not much of a hospital. I did get some bandage, but that's about it. It was a Jewish doctor who was the head of this hospital, Dr. Epstein. And he told me to get into a, a transport. And so it, this way, I was getting into the transport without inspection, because by then my foot was uh, damaged and with a limp I was walking and it was dangerous if I would go to front of a, an exception uh, that I wouldn't be passing. So I, what I did, and the inspection went on, I approached a young man who was already selected to the transport to exchange uniform. So we exchanged uniform. I got the outgoing transport by getting flannel uniform. And I still had the cotton uniform, which I got four months ago before I arrived to Auschwitz. I gave him a portion of bread for the uniform. I was in the transport without selection. Let me interrupt there, Dad. Let me ask, you a, let me ask you a question. So you're how old at this point? I was 15 and wasn't quite 16. I was a 15 and a half year old. So but, you're 15 and a half years old. You're snatched away from your home. You're separated from your parents and your sister. And friends. And friends. You're under the duress of being hungry. Now you've been injured by a guard and you've been forced by a doctor to get out of the hospital for fear that you won't pass selection in front of the Nazi soldiers. And then you make the choice to exchange uniform so that you can get out of there. So talk to us a little bit about that process. What were you thinking? Well, what did you go through to make that decision? I, I had this feeling. I don't know how it is. I'm not, it's not the smarts. I wasn't any smarter than anybody else. I just had the feeling that I have to get out of it because Auschwitz was getting more brutal because the heavy artillery of the war was already sounding toward us. And we hope that the uh, Russian troops would arrive early enough to liberate us. Well, that didn't happen. I was shipped out of Auschwitz with my limp because I exchanged clothes with the other prisoners who was already selected into the transport. And when we exchanged clothes, I gave him a, my portions of a bread and he said, I wanted to stay in Auschwitz because my father is here. And so this is how I got into the transport. That sort of saved my life. There was many of these de small decisions. I don't know why. It's not the smarts, but I made it just for gut feeling that I had to do this. And I, I did it, and that saved me. And uh, when I was shipped out of Auschwitz to Landsberg, another war camp, we worked on different projects, building bunkers and things like that. 30,000 people. From the 30,000 people, 15,000 did not survive because the brutal work was such that uh, it was, you know, the, the guards, if somebody didn't move right, just shot people. 
and I saw many people shot and they were thrown into the, the construction uh, between the steel reinforcement and poured cement on them. So you talked a lot about how many of these difficult decisions of how to navigate and survive during the camps was just pure gut and intuition. Talk to me a little bit about how you process this as a 16-year-old kid, 15-and-a-half-year-old kid. Now you've, you're on a transport going to a different camp, and you've seen all these horrible things. How did you keep yourself strong enough to survive this? What, what things were you telling yourself? It's it, it just, you know, human nature to try to live another day. Because my life wasn't mine. I saw people shooting, being shot for nothing, just being in the wrong place in the right time. And so it was just a gut feeling that I, I want to get out of Auschwitz because things were getting worse and worse. The food was meager anyway, and we were getting less and less. So talk to me, Dad, about when you were liberated and you were given some food rations from the American Red Cross. Talk to us a little bit about that. The, the food ration was, was more than enough. Actually, it was too much and too rich at the beginning. But I just ate what I was able to eat. And, and I, wasn't, I was controlling myself because I saw many, many times between liberators, prisoners, that they ate too much of the rich food and they never made it. Their big condition couldn't handle the rich food. And somehow, I, I don't know what made me the thing that I was able to control myself not to overeat at that time. I ate my portion and not more. And it was just, a, as I say, it was hardly hard to describe the feeling that we had all the food now, but I had to realize after a few days that what I didn't eat today, I still will get it tomorrow. And so it was just a fantastic feeling that I don't have to, because then the first time when we were ordered into the mess hall and there was loads of bread on the middle of the table, the loads of bread in two minutes was gone. Everybody was putting bread into their shirt. I mean, we realized that when it was, the bed was gone, they bought another bunch of bread, loads of it. Right. And so when we left the mess hall, because the realization that the bread will be there later and tomorrow, we all put out our bread <laughs> shirt, and there was more bread in the <laughs> mess hall than ever been. So you guys felt plentiful. Yes. You had plenty. So let me, let me read you a quote. I want to get your response to this. So you know who Eli Wiesel is. Yes. And he wrote a book called Night. And in that book, he talks in a brief quote about his father. And I pulled this quote out to read to you because it, it made me feel something myself. And I'm sure it would make you feel something. So the quote is, I was thinking of my father. He must have suffered more than I did. So how does that make you feel when you think about your father? And then I want to share something in terms of what resonates with me about that. Well, I can't compare. I wasn't where my father was. My father was in a forced labor camp in different parts of Hungary. And, uh, you know, my sister was in another factory as a slave laborer. 
but my mother and my eight-year-old sister was taken from the ghetto to, to Auschwitz. And by then, being in a ghetto for so long, and I got to the point that I have to obey. Obey the order that they send me, obey the order what I have to do. And so it, it was just a hoping to survive another day. It was just a day-to-day survivor, and it was, it was worse for me. I, with the hindsight, I can say this. Well, one, one of the things that resonates with me about that quote is that I have always lived with and maybe grappled with a little bit the fact that you and mom went through so much in order for me and Susie, my sister, to live in this country and have the freedoms that we appreciate. So when I hear that quote, I'm thinking of my father, he must have suffered more than I did. I'm, I'm aware of that. I'm aware that both of you have suffered much more than thankfully I've ever had to suffer. And, uh, and yet that has shaped me. You know, your experience has shaped me and somehow I think made me stronger. What's your response to that thought? Well, Robert, as many times I told you, our suffering when I was a kid, I did, should not reflect on you. You should not feel bad about it because you didn't have nothing to do with it. And I just a, a daily survivor, it was kind of built in. I was hoping to see my, my father or my sister all along. And that helped me that I want to get over this I want to survive this, all this atrocity, what we were living in. And I want to get over and find my, my father and my mother because I didn't know what happened at the time. Later, I learned in Auschwitz that people who were with children, they never survived another day. So we arrived July and that's, that's ever since then. That's my day of mourning about my mother and my little sister. Because uh, in July 1944, first week of July, when we arrived and we were separated, and there was no time to cry. There was another saying in Auschwitz you cry, you die. So I hold it back and I went day by day and I witnessed so many atrocities and brutality that I don't think too many people can say it now because my. I'm one of the last of the survivors because I'm, I was 15 years old at the time. Thanks God, I can count my blessings. I'm 90 and going on strong. Going on strong for sure. So tell me, <laughs> tell me this, when you think back to all those things that you witnessed and the fact that you just said, you know, if you cry, you die, you had to essentially suppress some of your emotions and feelings. How has that impacted you as you've, you know, gone through life it it made me stronger in a way because i wasn't living in, in the past i made a new life and we escaped communism 1956 57 and came to the united states and that was my dream because i was liberated by the americans it was my dream to live in a free country because in hungary anti-semitism was so deep rooted that anybody who was a Jew was abused. And when I came back from the camp, I had nightmares for many, many years. Eleven years later, I married your mother, 
and she helped me get over this these dreams and i stopped dreaming about my past and i was just living my future i already had you and soon and and it was a reason to go on with life and we started a new life in the united states and and that's my my blessing is my life of course i and i appreciate that that attitude of gratitude is so so powerful do you feel like it took you a while after the war and after escaping europe and coming to america where you were able to feel the level of gratitude that you're able to feel now or was it kind of instantaneous once you had that freedom you were able to move on when back we i was under communism another ism which i don't like nazism or communism i was used to it being abused sort of if you can say so that you can used to it but it yeah, i was just try to avoid for example when we were ordered in a camp marching i always stayed in the middle not on the edge because somebody staggered out of the edge the guards were able to shoot them and it was it was just a day to day survivor of in the camp those lessons of survival how do you think they've applied to you or helped you in the modern world in the in the world you live in now where you live in america you have freedom you have own businesses etc how has that impacted you i i tell you i cannot appreciate nobody can appreciate life more than i do every day it was just a, a blessing i have a little light in my living room which is a thank commandment and that is on day and night 24 hour 365 that reminds me what happened to me but i go by that light and i not living in the past i just wanna be reminded that how lucky i am so that's a really powerful point because and this is with no judgment about anyone who's gone through anything traumatic whether it's the holocaust or the vietnam war or anything else this is no judgment on other people but what do you make of the fact that you were able to turn this tragic and horrible dark human experience the holocaust and have it compel you to be positive and grateful where other people can't how do you make that distinction of that choice i think that you made to be grateful and positive and how other people maybe challenge or challenged by that well many people lived in the past i didn't because i just wanted to live my life fully and i was counting myself blessed that i was able to live even under communism so that i don't don't have to be part of that system when we escaped in 1957 from hungary and naturally we were orienting toward the united states i wanted to be with my liberators i wanted to thank them face to face and no matter what when i see a second world war soldiers uh, i always thank them you were my liberators mm-hmm. so if you recall now let's go to when i was a 15 year old boy and i realized for the first time i put together the pieces in my mind that you and mom were holocaust survivors and the reason i put that together because i was sitting in a history class in high school and realize hey you guys are jewish and you were in europe during the war 
and you must have been impacted by this. But it was something that you'd never spoken to me about that. First of all, why did you decide? Uh, why did you decide not to tell me? And second of all, when I asked you about it and asked you to speak in my high school class, tell me about what that decision was like for you. Well, we didn't want to burden you with our past. I tried to put our past behind me. It wasn't easy because I lost about 50 members of my family. Only five of us survived. And again, I have to count my blessing because my, my family, my father and my sister survived. And I myself, from my little family, beside them, from the 55 relations, only two cousins of mine survived. And so I was counting my blessing that I am alive every day and still counting it. And what was it like when I had you come to my high school history class and for the first time in your life, you told your history? <laughs> you were there. I don't, wouldn't have to tell you. but. It was, I wanted to talk about it, but it was such an emotional moment to go back to the time of camps. It was 60 years before. And so it was emotional and I broke down and I couldn't finish my speech. Since then, for the last 30 years, we were talking to schools, colleges, different factories, wherever we were invited. And we talked to, I don't know, probably at least a couple of hundred thousand people in, in our 30 years of being in the Speakers Bureau of Portland, Oregon Holocaust Resource Center. It was, it was a relieving, and I was able to go on fairly normally, at least I think normally, but I don't know if you ask mom, she might say something else, but <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think I adjusted pretty normally back to that civil life after after that atrocity I went yeah, through. For sure. I would agree with that, Dad, for sure. You know, one of the major decisions people make in their life is picking their life partner. And you and mom had a uh, unusually fast merger, if you will. You guys, uh, you guys met and were married quite quickly. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, I was 27 years old. And somehow I still was lonely, very much living to myself, go to work and make, make a living. It was still Hungary. It was communism. And a distant uncle of mine said to me one day, come on over. I'd like you to meet a young Jewish girl. So I went over, but I was very suspicious because he was a joker in the same time. I went across the street and behind the big gate. And I hid there and I waited who is coming. Sunday, not too many people were walking in, in Budapest on the street. So I watched who, is, who will turn into that house, that particular house. And I saw a little girl with a long coat, which later Eva told me that was her mother coat because she didn't have a coat. Turn into the house and then I just ran over the other side and watched as she, she went up to the third floor and knocked on the door of my distant uncle. And so when she went in, I saw her. I, I okay, this is the girl I'm going to be introduced to. I went in and I knocked on the door right away. And I, that's where I was introduced to mom. And, you know, we clicked. We were, had similar background. She was in the ghetto. I was in the camps. And so somehow we just clicked. And 59 days later, a long in. 
engagement. 59 days later, we were married. And that was 63 years ago. And I knock on, on the wood that we are still here. Yeah, for sure. That seemed to be a choice that worked out pretty well. <laughs> can't, can't complain. So, Dad, talk to me a little bit about as you transition to normal life in the United States, how do you feel like your choices moving forward in this country were affected by your experiences from before? Well, I was used to changes, sort of. And coming to the United States, it was a blessing. And I count my blessing even today that I was able to come to the United States and settle here because in Europe, especially in Hungary, the anti-Semitism is still deep-rooted. What made us decide so fast? We were lined up for bread. The time still was bread ration. And we were lined up for bread. As we were in the bed line, two young men front of us were talking about, because that was the time when the revolution broke out against the communism. And two young men were talking about, and they were saying, well, let's get rid of the communists first, and then we take care of the, we, we get rid of the rest of the Jews. And that moment, we, uh, mom was with me there. We looked at each other and we decided we don't want to live in this country. I had enough abuse because of my religion. And we, we, I started to work in the United States and it, it was the, the best jobs I got here. It's always got better because I progressed sort of easily. I was doing my work really honestly. When the whistle blew that lunchtime is over, I jumped up and sometimes my colleagues said, what's your rush, Les? I said, well, it's time to go back to work. <laughs> and you were happy about it? Yes. Yes. And I'm still happy about it. Yeah. So what are some of the lessons that you would say you took from the difficult circumstances that you survived in the Holocaust? What would you say are some of the lessons you got from that that you have applied to your your life since then? Well, I could have to say a lot of things, but it's, being a survivor, I, I just counted every day my blessings and appreciated life more than anyone can. And I wanted to prove myself every day to learn something, to embrace people, and regardless of their background or religion or, or color, and I just embraced everything. I was happy to every little thing in life. And I appreciated the advancement and the years that we progressed with mom. And we worked very hard and, and showing just love and acceptance to, to all. You know, throughout my life, you've often spoken about how you don't hate. You, you don't like Nazis. You don't like people who hate you don't carry any hate for the German people. So talk to me a little bit about how you let go of what I'm sure was a lot of anger. Well, the thing is, when I came out of the camp and I came back, when I heard German-sounding voice, I was getting goosebumps. I was full of hate. But with time, I made myself heal. I became loving people. I don't like the Nazis, as you said. And I don't like anybody who has abused people because of their who they are. 
I accept people all the way they are. Hate would, hate would kill me. I, I'm just not full of hate about what happened because I learned in the years that not all Germans were Nazis and not all Nazis were German. They were Hungarian Nazis. They are full of hate. And so that's what made us to decide, okay, we try to go to another country where hate is not so widespread. When you think back, what was then a very difficult choice to agree to speak about your history, and that was, I I remember how painful that was for you. When you look back at that simple choice to do that, and then you see the long and significant impact that you and mom have had by speaking and the building of the memorial and the museum and the legislation that was passed, what do you make of the significance that that one choice had? It, it was the choice which we couldn't make any other choice because I, I wanted to make it sure that we do the right thing because plain hate, hating because somebody is German, not all, as I mentioned, not all Germans were Nazis. And so it was Hungary had Nazis. All over Europe, there were Nazis in every nationalities. So I would like to embrace all the people who are not haters, who are, can accept people what they are, no matter what color, what nationality, or what language they speak. Never you- dream, dreamed of it, that I would have the, such a helpful ripple effect changing people's thinking. Because when we went, went out speaking, we changed many of the people's thinking. When we t- told our story, I didn't tell my story just to make people feel sorry for me. That's not my intention. We told our experiences, and I don't like to use the word story, we told our experiences because we wanted people to know what different it can make in people's life. The acceptance, the accepting people. And with that, you know, I hope we put a little bit of a help toward humanity. Is that your legacy? That's probably, there's not much, but this is my, our legacy. We're not going out speaking anymore, but I have a video. I still show or talking to people what happened to us because of the different religion we were. And so I just... Uh, telling people that the way it was. And I can't hate because I saw what hate does to innocent people. And actually, to my father's point, I want to point out to the listeners that many of their interviews and news articles and news interviews are available for your viewing at my website, clearchoices.live. So if you're interested in hearing a little bit more detail about their history of survival, that is available on our website. So, Dad, let me ask you another question. You said something very powerful. You said that you don't like to use the word story. You like to use the word history or experience or testimony. So my question is this. Talk to me a little bit about the words that you choose or the power of choosing the right words and how that impacts your life. Well, choosing the right word. Well, you know, my English is not the best even after 60 years, 60 some years living in the United States. I try to choose my words as much as I know the right way with acceptance and try to guide people the right direction. Right. So talk to me a little bit about the significance 
of the legislation that you helped pass in the state of Oregon? Yeah, this is what we did in Oregon because we wanted the Holocaust to be part of the education. We decided with mom that we were talking for 30 years for different schools and how much, how much interest we got from the students or from the listeners about genocide, how much unjust things happening still in the world. It didn't end it and we just had to fight. And so we have this video recording and we still having played to, to different groups of people. And I just love it when people asking questions and we can answer with our own world what happened and try to explain why it happened. I love that. That's, that's super, it's, it's very compelling, the impact you have had. And again, I want to reiterate to the listeners that it's ultimately my parents' history of survival and their 37 years of commitment in telling their history to students, churchgoers, and synagogue congregants, and business people, and politicians, and anyone that would listen to their story of survival. It was that bravery they had that really led me to this podcast. It led me to not only want to tell their history and share it with you, but then also seek out other bold and brave and brilliant people who simply made choices that led them to have a major impact on their world. And you, dad, are, along with mom, are people that have had a major, major impact. And I'm so proud to be a part of that and be connected to you and the legacy that you've built. Well, I, I'm proud that I, we were able to do it. But as I say, we didn't do it for fame. We just do that because we feel that way, that people have to change and not hate. Instead of hate, they should love and accept each other again and again. And mom and I, we're taking it as a duty to do that as long as we can. Well, and that is, that is a powerful choice. You hear the saying often that love is really a choice. And I believe that. I believe that choosing to love your partner, choosing to love your neighbors, to love one another, and the message of love that you and mom have chosen to disseminate for the last 40 years is truly powerful and inspiring. So I can't thank you enough to have been a part of this today. Thank you, Rob. Thank you so much for joining us. If you've been inspired and motivated by what you heard today, please subscribe to the show so you don't miss an episode. Post it on social media, invite friends, and let me know if you have any potential guests. While you're there, leave us a review. We'd love to connect with you as well, so check out our Facebook page by searching Clear Choices. I'm available for speaking engagements, and you can find more information by visiting our website at clearchoices.live. And all this can be found in our show notes. Join us next week for more inspiring stories that can help us all make clear choices. Thanks for listening.